Well, thank you for uh, listening to, if you're listening to this on CD or podcast, we appreciate your listening to the Baptized in the Holy Spirit series. Just to review, this is a four-chapter series. Uh, tonight we're going to do chapter three, but I'm going to quickly review and give you all the titles. Chapter one was called The Larger Context, The Person and Ministry of the Holy Spirit. Chapter two was called The Larger Context, The Activity of the Holy Spirit. Tonight we are doing chapter three, Baptized in the Holy Spirit, five biblical examples, five biblical patterns. And uh, then we will do chapter four, imparting and receiving the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Now, just by quick way of review, uh, chapter one, the larger context, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, what we looked at, if you're listening to the whole series, you probably know this already. If not, this will catch you up if you're just jumping in right at chapter three. But chapter one, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, what we're trying to do is look at the larger context of who is the Holy Spirit. Why do we need a deeper experience of the Holy Spirit, a deeper knowledge of him? Why do we need to re-seek out what the scriptures teach about the Holy Spirit and seek to take our sub-biblical experience and ask God by his grace to bring us up to a biblical experience, to live the purpose of what God intends to do by the person and power and ministry of the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to do that? So in that uh, sense, chapter one is more of a theoretical or theological overview of the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. We looked at his personhood, that he's God. He's a person, not an energy force. He's one of God's three great tools of grace. The word of God, the spirit of God, and his church are the means of grace by which God grows us, calls us to God in the first place, and also equips and sanctifies us to do his will. And we looked at word pictures of the Holy Spirit. There are many. We just touched on a few, like the Holy Spirit as a dove, as a servant, and an advocate. But then we looked at, very importantly, seven points or aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And what's so important there is that God the Father and God the Son have an eternal predestined plan. And they are clearly working all things to be like uh, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which starts as the smallest of the seeds and expands and expands until its branches fill the nations, fill the whole earth. Uh, the kingdom of God is like leaven working its way through dough until it spreads through the whole lump or in the whole loaf. Uh, the kingdom of God is coming and coming. It's growing, it's expanding. God is bringing his kingdom and that has great implications now. And so um, the uh, we will probably do, uh, if, if you haven't listened to some of our messages called the kingdom of God defined and so forth in our kingdom of God series or our gospel of the kingdom series, e either of those, I would encourage you to reconsider what the kingdom of God is. But it's clear in scripture, Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Where the kingdom of God is, is being advanced, uh, it, it's because the Holy Spirit is breaking forth and being advanced and being made manifest. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Where the Spirit of God is being made manifest, that is by definition spiritual, supernatural, above and beyond nature. It will bring the redemptive power of thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it behooves us 
to do all we can to learn to know the Holy Spirit, be filled and refilled and filled again and filled more with the Holy Spirit, to learn how to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. All of that is necessary if the church is going to accomplish the purpose of God. In fact, it's so necessary that in Acts 1, Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And he told them not to go minister, not to start their mission, not to start their proclamation until they waited for the Holy Spirit to come on them to become his witnesses. Uh, Much of uh, our Christian lives, we are doing things, uh, speaking the word and so forth, apart from the manifestation and the power of God's Spirit. And we are very much like Apollos in the book of Acts chapter 18, who knew some things about the Lord and was acquainted with John the Baptist's baptism, and he was teaching accurately what he knew about the things of Jesus, but he was missing almost all of the package until others took him aside and explained the ministry of Christ. And and you see the fruit of Apollos' ministry when Paul arrives at Ephesus in Acts 19, and he says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul realizes that they had been influenced by Apollos, and they had so much more to hear about who Jesus is, about his death, his sinless life, his atonement, his his, uh, burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation. They needed the full package. And he not only uh, leads them to Christ and water baptizes them, but he lays hands on them and they speak in tongues and prophesy and receive the Holy Spirit. So um, apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, we're missing the point of the kingdom of God. It's that crucial. So again, part one, the larger context, not only did we look at the person of the Holy Spirit, but we looked at seven aspects of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we saw that God does everything that he does by the agency of his Holy Spirit working through his church. And um, he is the representative of the Father and the Son. He doesn't speak on his own initiative. He speaks whatever he hears. He's given to lead us into righteousness and convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgments. He bears witness of Christ, of the resurrected of Christ. John 15, 26, he will bear witness of me. Uh, He brings into our remembrance all that Jesus has taught us. Uh, He opens the anointing, 1 John 2, 27, teaches us all things. Uh, The Holy Spirit is the power of God, and where he is, there must be spiritual, supernatural signs, wonders, deliverance, healing, salvation, changes of heart, not just, uh, you know, sinners' prayers and decisions, but powerful conversions that change hearts uh, to want to love God, to want hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, to be made alive out of death, uh, to be delivered from the domain of darkness and sin. That's the Holy Spirit that we need to, to know, be filled with, encounter, and understand. And that's the, this series is just to re-examine what we know about the Holy Spirit to get us started with the Holy Spirit in that sort of direction and that sort of path. So um, chapter two was the activities of the Holy Spirit. And so whereas chapter one was more the theological overview of how the Holy Spirit represents the fathers and the son, chapter two was in the Old Testament, the New Testament, the early church, and throughout church history, some brief examples 
of the activities of the Holy Spirit to show that wherever the Holy Spirit is working, there is vision, there is changed lives, there is confession of sin and repentance, there are healings, there are miracles, there are deliverances, there is the, the, the casting out of demons. It's interesting that, of course, Jesus carried a whole greater dimension of the Holy Spirit than anyone had up till him. And although we see uh, Satan in the Old Testament and we know of him as the adversary and the accuser and some things in the Old Testament from passages in like Job and so forth, but all of a sudden when Jesus comes in on the scene, totally empowered by the Holy Spirit, it says that the Father gave him the Spirit without measure. Uh, you see demons freaking out crying out, we know who you are, and all this kind of thing. And the clash of kingdoms begins to intensify, and Jesus says the kingdom of God is upon you. If we come in to more of the presence, person, and ministry of the Holy Spirit, we will come into the activity of the Holy Spirit. And if we come into the activity of the Holy Spirit, the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness will become more concrete, more manifest, more demonstrated in our midst, and darkness has no power in, in relation to light. Light always dispels darkness. And uh, we need to be ready for and equipped for that battle. Part th chapter 3 we're going to look at tonight is called Baptizing the Holy Spirit, Five Biblical Examples, Five Biblical Patterns. And, uh, and then we'll conclude with chapter 4, which is really about how to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, how to impart it if you're helping someone receive it, how to receive it if you want to receive it. Tonight, we're looking at, again, baptizing the Holy Spirit, five biblical patterns and five biblical examples. Now, it's very important for us to understand that God is a God of models and patterns. Even Old Testament models were foreshadowings of the greater heavenly pattern. God has always been, since Genesis 1, when he created the garden, when he created man in his image, he has, his purpose has always been to export the perfect patterns of the temple and his presence and tabernacle in heaven and the perfect uh, atmosphere completely filled with his spirit. He has always purposed eternally to export heaven into the earth and to, in thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what he is always doing is exporting his pattern. So again, in, in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the garden is, is, is a pattern of the temple. God came, his presence came to, to Adam in the cool of the day. Um, the tabernacle of Moses is a type or a pattern of, the, of what the church now is, the temple and the tabernacle of God. That uh, group of people that demonstrate his kingdom and mediate his presence and bring his redemptive purposes to the earth. And Moses was told, even in that uh, inadequate foreshadowing uh, temple and tabernacle in the wilderness, to see to it that he makes everything according to the pattern. And God spends several chapters saying, make everything exactly according to the pattern. The most notable is Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9 and verse 40. But then starting in verse 26, he details every aspect of the tabernacle. Then he, uh, after he does that, then uh, he 
Uh, some people in modern times find this really tedious, but then after he tells them exactly how to make everything, then he starts making it. And, he t- and the details, he made everything exactly this way. And, and over and over again, it says, especially in chapters 37, 38, 39, that Moses made everything according to the pattern, exactly as it was told him on the mount. And then when he made everything according to the pattern in chapter 40, the glory of God filled the tabernacle. We wonder why sometimes we have all these ideas uh, about, you know, that man-made ideas about the gospel, about uh, ecclesiology and church things and all sorts of issues that we've, that we've not re-examined the pattern and we've not built according. We've used American marketing ideas or whatever, and we wonder why we lack the glory of God. But, you know, basic to Scripture is that if we will build it according to the patterns, almost like uh, that Kevin Costner movie, Fields of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. If we build according to God's pattern, he will be pleased to fill it. We have to conduct our life, our attitudes, our motivations, in a way that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit, in a way that invites his presence. We need to to build the kind of uh, people together that can handle the corporate expression of the glory of God. Uh, throughout the church where everyone prophesies and everyone, uh, you know, 1 Corinthians 14 says you can all prophesy one by one. Everyone should move in spiritual power and spiritual gifts. We have to find that pattern. So uh, I'm very big. Grace Christian Fellowship is very big on studying biblical models and building biblical patterns. And even if the building is tedious, like Noah took 40 years to build an ark, even if everyone mocks, even if no one understands, we don't have the right to just build it the way, uh, in any kind of humanistic man way. So with that, I want to, I want to start by saying, um, being baptized in the Holy Spirit in itself is part of a larger pattern. When you see people come to Christ in, in the gospels and acts, you will always see them having five experiences. One is regeneration, confession of sins, repentance, conversion. You could call that receiving Jesus Christ. To those who received him, he gave the exousia, that is the authority and power, to become children of God. And children always behave like their father. Children become their their parents in so many ways. Then you see people getting water baptized, which was a covenant transaction of leaving the kingdoms of this world and covenanting with the people of God. You're not joining a specific church necessarily when you're water baptized, but you are committing to being a part of the community of believers, which should always cause you to find yourself committed to some local expression of his body. Thirdly, we see them being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Properly understood, Baptized in the Holy Spirit is actually just um, one half, uh, the second half of one baptism. Jesus, when he, he was born of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit, he always had the Holy Spirit. But at the water baptism of, of John, he would, the pattern was that he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him and took him through the wilderness of temptation. And he came out of all of that, leaning on the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, Uh, filled with the Spirit without measure, and proclaiming the kingdom of God and making disciples. That is the pattern. 
we are to get baptized in the Holy Spirit and begin to be empowered by the Holy Spirit and be sanctified by the Holy Spirit to enter into the mission of proclaiming the kingdom and making disciples. Fourthly, you always see in the book of Acts and and, uh, the Gospels, people who encounter Christ, who receive Christ, who are water baptized, or baptized in the Holy Spirit, they also get delivered from iniquity. They get delivered from demonic spirits. They get healed emotionally, physically. Uh, some manifestation of the restoration uh, of things that were damaged by the fall begins to come into their life. They, they experience some sort of deliverance and healings from addictions, demons, fears, uh, emotional troubles, or whatever. And part if part of the early church's baptismal uh, prayers and so forth is was renouncing Satan and his kingdom. Paul said in Colossians 1, you have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Acts 19, after the, the encounter that we talked about already with Paul leading the first 12 in Ephesus to Christ, and they get water baptized and baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they speak in tongues and prophesy, they begin to minister in the city of Ephesus, and all kinds of stuff happens. There's Eventually there's riots and uh, all this kind of uh, stuff. But one of the outcomes of it is all those who believed renounced their hidden practices and began to burn their occult books and so forth. One of the reasons we have so much trouble uh, getting people to grow in the Lord is they have so many hooks of, of various demonic things in their life that they're unwilling to leave. Besetting sins, occult practices, uh, re- illegal relationships that are bad soul ties, things that are needed to move forward with Christ. He is a jealous God, and he won't accept just being one of your 10 or 12 top priorities. And you can't get delivered, healed, and move forward in Christ until he's number one in your heart and actions and life. He who has my commandments, John 14, 21, and obeys them is the one who loves me. And if you love me, uh, my Father will come to you, and I will come to you, and we will disclose ourselves to you. You'll come to know the Lord if you have his commandments and obey him. Fifthly, they entered a New Testament community, which included a lifestyle of worship, Studying the word, the apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, prayers. There was a sense of awe, and, and God was adding to their number day by day. Those were being saved. That's really the, the pattern of how to start the Christian wife, life, wife, the Christian life that we're trying to get back to. How we start the Christian life is to go through those five steps to receive Christ, water baptized, baptized in the Holy Spirit, delivered, healed, and enter a New Testament lifestyle. Everyday spiritual disciplines, everyday fellowship, everyday confessing our sins, everyday entering, preparing for training and entering the mission of God. That was their life. That was the, how you began the Christian life. Uh, some of us go 5, 10, 15 years, and we still haven't experienced those first five steps that, that New Testament Christians experienced the first week. And we wonder why we're so ineffective and why the church is so compromised and why our fruit is so little and we bear forth a few raisins instead of bunches of grapes uh, because we've got to start this thing right. And that's called the five first steps of entering the kingdom of Christ. You can look for that on our website. We taught that in other places. Just look for anything that says first steps or five first steps in entering the kingdom. So tonight I wanna look, um, that's just uh, by way of saying, hey, this thing of, of patterns, 
fits into a bigger scheme of patterns. It's always important to look to patterns. Jesus is the ultimate pattern. The early church is a pattern and so forth. What we're going to look through today is in the book of Acts, there are five examples of people uh, receiving Christ, getting water baptized and baptizing the Holy Spirit and coming into a New Testament community. And we're going to look at those five examples and see what kind of, of uh, patterns we can discern from those five examples. So again, we're, let's look at these five biblical patterns from the book of Acts. And as we do, I want you to look for five distinct things that, were, that are repeated over and over. And here are the five. Number one, you will see that being baptized in the Holy Spirit is a distinct and separate experience from being born again, the new birth, receiving Christ. That is very clear. Now, that is very important because it is very clear that you, if, if you really are truly biblically converted, if you've really received Jesus, if you're really hungering and thirsting for righteousness, desiring to grow in his word, fellowship with his people, etc., the Holy Spirit has, you have received the Holy Spirit in a regenerating way. But it's clear that even in the pattern of Jesus, the Holy Spirit came on him in an empowering way. The word baptized means to be immersed. And that beyond being immersed in the Holy Spirit is a, is a being empowered by the Holy Spirit, that, that there's a, a breaking process and a sanctifying process and a learning to yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. But if we have done that, it's very clear in Scripture that our ministries ought to look like Paul, ought to look like Peter, ought to look like the other apostles, because it, they are just the continuing ministries of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He heals, delivers, casts out demons, all that. So we want to see that one of the reasons we're lacking that is we don't understand that it's a distinct and separate experience from the new birth. Secondly, the outward initial evidence of the inner reality of being baptized in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. I want to be clear that I do believe that because of our misunderstandings of, of many things and our thinking that spiritual things always have to be passive in, so, in some sort of Eastern way, because Western culture has become so full of unbelief and anti-supernaturalism and skepticism that we have trouble moving into the things of the Spirit I believe that there are people who get baptized in the Holy Spirit all the time who do not speak in tongues. However, I want to make it clear that if they properly understood how to respond to the things of God, in which every step in Christ, even receiving Christ in the first place, always involves his initiation and our response. If we understood the response, God wants to give every believer a prayer language, an ability to speak in tongues, whereby he can speak the mysteries of God. He can thank and worship God in tongues. He can, when, his, when he prays in the spirit in tongues, his, his spirit prays. When he prays in his natural language, his mind prays. And the outcome is that God wants you to pray both ways. God has the, God has the desire to baptize all Christians in the Holy Spirit and to give them the gift of speaking in tongues as a tremendous tool of grace in your Christian life. Many wonderful Christians uh, are baptized in the Spirit who don't speak in tongues. Many wonderful Christians are not baptized in the Holy Spirit, but they're still wonderful Christians, but they're missing an important, powerful tool of grace that opens the kingdom and the scriptures in a, in, in a way that God intended. Thirdly, normally 
this baptism in the Spirit in the, in the New Testament did not follow years later, but it followed shortly after conversion. As soon as a few moments, in the case of Cornelius in Acts 10 and his people, and as, as long as a few days, as in the case of Acts 2, when Jesus told them to wait, and they waited a full week. There are no examples of people being baptized in the Holy Spirit in the New Testament where it was years and years after their conversion. Thus, it's very important to understand some, unfortunately, some charismatic and, and historically some Pentecostal groups made getting baptized in the Holy Spirit some, some mark of having the real deal and, and, and reaching some point of, of maturity. It's just a tool to help you grow. Getting Empowered by the Holy Spirit is a necessary tool that he comes into our life and empowers us, motivates us, activates us, and points us to Christ over and over. That's an important tool. Uh, but calling someone mature is like that is, just, is, is, is about as, makes as much sense as a young Christian who has his first Bible or first two or three Bibles, and he's really hungry to read the word, and he's, God is showing him a lot and going, wow, that's a really mature Christian. No, that's a motivated by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, baby Christian who's uh, doing uh, appropriate things that a baby should do, feeding on the milk of God's word quite regularly. You need to be baptized in the Spirit. You need to speak in tongues regularly, and that is no mark of Christian fruit, maturity, or ministry, but it's a necessary step to getting there. That, and it normally follows shortly after conversion, Anywhere from a few moments to a few days. That's the third point we want to look for as we look at these patterns. Fourthly, there's an atmosphere of spiritual impartation in every occurrence or every time that someone gets baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, every occurrence is accompanied by an anointed person who lays hands on the, re the people receiving the Holy Spirit, or it's in a group uh, atmosphere where they are praying and seeking it together, such as Acts 2, where Jesus told them, and there, therefore there's faith and expectations. Uh, in Cornelius' case, there was faith and expert expectations because uh, uh, God sent uh, angels to his house and told them to go get Peter, and God gave Peter a vision. And, believe, and so there was, a, there was an atmosphere, an impartation of spiritual expectancy. So fourthly, there was always a spiritual impartation atmosphere uh, that either was affected by great prayer, preaching, or laying on of hands. Uh, generally, being baptized in the Holy Spirit was a corporate experience. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, by one spirit you were baptized into one body. Part of the outworking of being baptized in the Holy Spirit should be to discern the community of believers more and become more a part of your Christian brothers and sisters and, the, and, and, and partner with them to minister together. Um, now, fifthly, there are also additional biblical manifestations. The, the initial evidence of speaking in tongues was biblically normally followed by other experiences, other results, fruits of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. Uh, again, speaking in tongues was an initial thing, but other clearly biblical fruits of the Holy Spirit always followed, including, unfortunately, repeated testings. Remember, Jesus was led to this wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Paul began to proclaim uh, the, the kingdom in, uh, in Damascus and, and ended up having to be let down, uh, having to run for his life. And, uh, you know, hit the fullness of what Paul comes into is really 
at least 14 years later after Barnabas comes and gets him and he ministers at Antioch for a while and eventually the Holy Spirit says, you know, go out and begin to do the mission I told you about when I first called you. There's uh, increased boldness for witnessing. There's increased zeal and passion for God. There should be increased uh, illumination. The scripture should come alive to you and be quickened to you. Uh, there could, should be increased anointing fruits, uh, uh, increased manifest presence of God in our, in our worship, uh, a desire for more personal holiness, corporate holiness. All of these outworkings of the ba baptism in the Holy Spirit should follow. And so we want to look for these five patterns as we go through the five examples. Again, let's repeat them really quick. One, a distinct and separate experience from the new birth. Two, the outward initial evidence of the inner reality is speaking in tongues. Three, they normally follow shortly after conversion from a few moments to a few days. Four, an atmosphere of spiritual impartation. Five, additional biblical manifestations uh, such as fruit, gifts, desire for holiness, uh, thirst for the word, you know, et cetera. Increased zeal, passion, and so forth. So let's look at these five examples. Again, as a prelude, we're in Acts 1, Jesus tells them to wait for the Holy Spirit to, uh, in Jerusalem until he comes upon them. Um, we've read that in previous tapes, so we're going to skip that. But I do want to point out verse 14 where it says that these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, by Acts 2, we know that that was about 120 people uh, who basically heard Jesus say, wait in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized in the Holy Spirit many days from now. So with that, let's look at the first example, which is in, at Pentecost itself in Acts chapter 2, 1 through 17. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. I always say that was the first miracle that everybody showed up for the meeting and they were praying that everyone came. Uh, and by the way, it was the first day of the week. Uh, everyone came to the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection and to pray and, and uh, everyone showed up. Nobody was missing. Um, that would be a miracle in itself in modern times. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Many translations says, as the Spirit enabled them or gave them ability to speak. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together they were bewildered because each of them was hearing them speak in his own language, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear them speaking in our own language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, uh, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia? Notice there's a 14 nations of the Roman Empire uh, in all. By the way, just so you understand who these people are, these are, are Jewish converts that are serious enough. Uh, uh, sometimes they're natural-born Jews. Because the Jews began to be dispersed in the first Babylonian captivity and then the second, uh, the, the fall of Judea and in, in, in the ministries of Ezra and Nehemiah, in the, in the post-exile ministries, only some Jews came back to Jerusalem. Only some Jews were in Galilee. There were still many Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire. So some of these were 
biological descendants of Abraham Jews. Others were converts to Judaism. That was a very popular thing happening at the time. Hellenized Jews. And they would have understood. It's very important that you understand that they would have understand their national language. They would have, uh, they were educated people. So they would have likely read Greek or Latin or both. And they clearly would have studied Hebrew and known the Jewish Aramaic uh, kind of watered down Hebrew of, of the day. Uh, they didn't need the gospel preached to them in their own languages. They could hear the gospel in Hebrew, Aramaic, or in Greek, uh, and so forth. But they did, as a sign to them, they heard languages being spoken in uh, their own languages from the 14 nations that are identified and possibly more. That we don't know that that's a, uh, an exhaustive list. There might have been people from other nations. There probably likely there were. And uh, they were all continued in amazement with great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? Now, it's important to see that they hear them uh, in our own tongues, not necessarily talking about the gospel, but speaking the mighty deeds of God, which would include the gospel things that God created, but it might also conclude parting the Red Sea and all the th great things that, of the mighty deeds of God. Uh, they were amazed and said, what must this be? And then some accused them, others were mocking and saying they're full of sweet wine. Everywhere in the New Testament that the word wine is mentioned is the word oinos, which is really fermented alcoholic wine. Uh, this word is uh, glucose. Uh, I'm, I'm messing up the pronunciation. It's something like glucose, but it's where we get glucose from. It means cheap, sweet wine. They're basically saying these guys are winos. They're drinking cheap uh, wine, something like uh, we have cheap wines in our culture. I think like Mad Dog or Boone's Farm or something like that. They're, they're accusing them of being winos and drinking like really lousy wine. And <laughs> I love that that's the start of the church. And Peter's defense is he takes a stand with the 11 and said, men of Judea, in Jerusalem, let it be known and give heed to these words. These men are not drunk, for it's too early in the morning. <laughs> it's only the ninth hour of the day. What a great start for the church. Uh, it's too early to be winos. Uh, they don't, they usually over, you know, they're hung over and they sleep in until noon. Uh, so it's only nine in the morning. So then he, uh, he be stands from there. And he said, uh, begins to speak, and he says, this is what God promised in the last days, that I'll pour forth my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and your young men will dream dreams. Okay, so with that understanding of Acts 2, 1 through 17, let's look at our five points. Point number one, uh, is it a distinct and separate experience from the new birth? Now, there is all kinds of theological con confusion as far as when did the disciples get born again? Some would say that... Earlier, um, in one of the encounters with Christ in John chapters 20 and 21, Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Some people believe they weren't quickened until that day. Uh, I don't want to quibble about that. I do want to say that normally the biblical evidence of conversion is the hunger and thirst for righteousness and the desire to follow Jesus. Jesus called them to be his followers, some of them in Luke 5 and Mark 1, and depending on which gospel you're reading, early on in his ministry, they had not only seen miracles, they had done miracles. They had been uh, empowered by the Spirit. 
I would believe that, that uh, it is very clear that at this point, they are converted. Because the main sign, Jesus said, he who has my commandments and believes me. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear. Listen to this carefully. 1 Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that 500 people saw Jesus resurrected. However, Acts 1 and 2 make clear that only 120 out of those 500 were impressed enough to actually become followers. The main sign of biblical conversion is not praying a sinner's prayer. The main sign of regeneration of a, is a changed heart that, that wants to hunger and thirst for righteousness and that loves to obey and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to take up our cross, deny ourselves. The 120 people had done what Jesus said. They had waited in Jerusalem in the midst of political turmoil, and they were frankly scared to do so. Uh, yet their, their desire to be where Jesus wanted them to be was stronger than their fear of man. I would say it's clear, for, if you understand biblical conversion, that these people were clearly already born again, converted followers of the Lord Jesus Christ when Pentecost happens, and it's clearly a distinct and separate experience. Our second point, uh, did they initially speak in tongues? Acts 2.4 makes it clear that they all spoke in tongues as the Spirit gave them ability to speak. Now, in this particular example, there's additional manifestations of the Spirit, such as tongues of fire, a mighty wind, uh, that was apparently, I don't know if the crowd heard the wind or, or heard them speaking in tongues, but there was enough noise and tumult to draw a crowd. So, um, clearly, they all spoke in tongues. Thirdly, is this uh, normally shortly after conversion, a few moments to a few days? Again, we don't know exactly when they, they, they were all converted. Um, this is 50 days after the resurrection, and they, or after uh, the crucifixion, after Passover. Uh, so uh, approximately seven weeks after the resurrection, um, exactly seven Sundays after the resurrection, uh, 49 days. And um, Jesus had told them just before he ascended to wait in Jerusalem, so it's one week after that. Uh, it's certainly not years and years later. Um, depending on if, you know, when Jesus breathed on them in John 20 and 21 uh, and said receive the Holy Spirit, is if that was when they were regenerated, uh, if they were regenerated when they became followers of Christ, it could be as much as three and a half years but it's clearly at the inception of the church in a week after Christ's ascension. Partly because the whole point of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is that when Jesus ascended to the Father, having stated that all authority has been given to him in heaven and earth, he was coronated by, by the Father. He couldn't sit down at the Father's right hand without a coronation ceremony. God's a covenant God. He, there are always covenant ceremonies. And just like Samuel anointed Saul and David, the Father anointed Jesus, pouring the Holy Spirit on him, anointing him as King and King of Lord of Lords, and before he sat down at the Father's right hand, that anointing oil began to spill into the earth. It's still flowing. It's still spilling. It's still pouring. It's called Pentecost. It's called the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And it's still huge in birthing the church into the reality of the kingdom of God, not just the theory uh, of theological points, but taking the theological points as a foundation for real biblical experience. 
So, um, thirdly, it, uh, was it not many days from now? It's clearly uh, shortly after Jesus tells them to wait for it. Point four is, uh, is was there an atmosphere of spiritual impartation? Again, we read Acts 1.14. They were praying for the whole week based on Jesus telling them that they were to receive the promise of the Father. The promise of the Father comes from Old Testament metaphors that God will give them a new covenant where they'll all know me from the least to the greatest, and I will put my spirit within them. Obviously, in some that obviously the Holy Spirit was within God's people at times in the Old Testament. It doesn't. Some people say, well, the Holy Spirit only came upon people in the Old Testament. That really doesn't bear out with all the scriptures. Some people were definitely filled with the Holy Spirit as Saul was, but it certainly wasn't as widespread. It, there, there's something as specifically uh, better about the covenant, as Hebrews tells us, we have a better covenant. And Jeremiah prophesied that there would be a new covenant, a better covenant, and that I would that they would all know me from the least to the greatest. They would all be priests of God. They, that I would write my laws upon their inward heart and their mind, and uh, they that they would um, that I put my spirit within them. Joel had prophesied that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. They when they heard Jesus say the promise of the Father, they were expecting some greater, powerful implications of the power of the Holy Spirit into their lives. Uh, so clearly there's an atmosphere of spiritual impartation, uh, and Acts 2, 1, they were all together in one place. Uh, they were expecting things. Fifthly, um, is there additional biblical manifestations, uh, such as testings, brokenness, boldness for witnessing? All of that happens in Acts 2. They're, first of all, they're accused of being drunk. <laughs> and, uh, secondly, Peter preaches perhaps, one of the greatest sermons of all time. I hope to have it on DVD or MP3 or whatever the technology is in heaven to uh, to listen. He goes through the whole Old Testament and demonstrates that Jesus is Yahweh, God with us, Emmanuel. All the things you are expecting is, is God coming among us, and he's Mashiach, Christus, all of the anointed one. All the things you are expecting, God, you know, uh, uh, put all of those things in this one person, Jesus, and you killed him. You didn't get it at all. Your, your religious paradigms, uh, as a religious, religious cessationist, pharisaical paradigms always do, caused you to miss the purpose of God in your very midst. And, and you killed him. So, again, from Acts 2, we see all... Uh, five of, of our, of our uh, things that we're looking for in our pattern. And then interestingly, we don't have time to develop this, but if you look at the last part of Acts 2 and you look at, say, Acts 4, 23 through 33, uh, you will see uh, points A, B, C, and D being fulfilled over and over again among the New Testament Christ Christians, that they, uh, that they receive the Baptism in the Spirit is a distinct experience. They're speaking in tongues. It's quickly after conversion. There's spiritual atmosphere and impartation, and all these things start to happen. So let's look at the second example in Acts chapter 8. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, just to give you a little context, uh, 
Acts 7 is, of course, uh, the trial of, of Stephen before the Sanhedrin. Uh, he, they're totally convicted. Religious people always oppose the purpose of God in their generation and so forth. Uh, they kill him. Uh, he looks up to heaven, says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Don't hold this sin against him. Dies uh, with some similar things on his lip to, to our Lord. And uh, Saul is in hearty agreement. Uh, and he receives letters from the, the high priest to go uh, round up other Christians in other cities and so forth. And so there's this persecution that, um, that, that breaks out. Um, I wish I could develop that more as a theme. Jesus made that clear that I'm going to send you apostles and prophets and you're going to kill some and stone the others. And, and uh, part of the final uh, removing the kingdom from Israel and, and putting it in the church uh, that Jesus talked about in Matthew 21 through 24 is going on at this right in this these very things the the uh, this the, the religious Israelites the wicked and perverse generation that Peter told them to be saved from uh, breaks out and in in tries to to like Revelation 12 the serpent the accuser of the brethren tries to kill the male child that's coming forth and and so forth and Saul's a big part of that. So many of the believers are scattered. One of them happens to be Philip, who we met in Acts chapter 6, is one of the seven uh, men that were anointed of God that, that were raised up to, to deal with the situation in Acts chapter 6. And Philip is running for his life. And what basically happens is he gets to Samaria, which is about a day, two days journey, about two days journey from Jerusalem, depending on how fast you're running or walking. Um, and he... I think he basically says, you know, I got a good lead on these guys. For some reason, he stops in Samaria and begins to proclaim the kingdom. And it says, therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. That's always important. You know, 1 Corinthians 4, 2, the kingdom of God does not exist in just words, but demonstrations of the Spirit and power. So Philip goes down, uh, and he is, you know, proclaiming the kingdom, and there's signs being performed. And then it says, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them. That is normal conversion process. That still happens in so many places of the world. Why does it not happen in America? Because we're such a Christian nation. No, we've become full of witchcraft and the occult and sorcery and drugs and pornography and everything else. It doesn't happen in America because we're full of unbelief and skepticism uh, due to the enlightenment and the pseudoscientific mentality and often due to the religiosities and, and Phariseeism that, that we're filled with. There was never supposed to be a proclamation of the kingdom that God didn't stretch out his hands to confirm with signs and wonders. So again, uh, with a loud voice, uh, many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. The spirits were coming out of many with a loud voice. There was much rejoicing in that city. You know, praise and worship started breaking out uh, in spontaneous way, not just sing three songs, but believe me, they were uh, shouting. They were, they were a little, little excited. Um, Then there was a, a cultist named Simon, formerly who practiced magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. 
Uh, that says a lot about our kind of Christianity today with the whole TV self-promotion thing that, that's so big in the church today, claiming to be someone great, and they all from smallest to greatest. And by the way, edit that part out, will you? I don't want that. Yeah. He was claiming to be someone great, and they all from smallest to great were giving attention to him, saying this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized men and women alike. That's water baptism. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. And as he observed signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Well, how did the apostles in Jerusalem hear? I personally believe that Philip had the wisdom to send for him, but that's not stated in the text. That's just conjecture. Uh, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that they believed, they sent Peter and John, uh, and they came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit, he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's very important. Then they began laying their hands on them. They were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. This is where we get the term simony from, the buying of church offices and so forth. Uh, so much of that is still with us today. Uh, saying, give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God in, with money, repent of this wickedness, and so forth. And, and various things continue to happen. So let's, uh, let's again, uh, put our test of the five, uh, the five um, uh, patterns here. One, is it a distinct and separate experience from the new birth? That is very clear. It says the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were even getting delivered from demons, uh, healed. There was, they were rejoicing in the Lord. They were clearly converted, yet in the sense that we're talking about, the Holy Spirit had not fallen on any of them. It's a distinct experience. Now, secondly, the outward evidence, speaking in tongues. Let's be very clear here. This passage does not say anything about speaking in tongues. We don't know that they spoke in tongues. What we do know is that Simon's heart was not right within him, and he was not discerning the Spirit of God correctly, and he saw that the Holy Spirit was imparted through the laying on of hands. Therefore, there must have been some outward manifestation that he could observe with his five senses. It doesn't specifically say it's tongues, but it, but it is impossible to believe that it was just some inward thing that happened in some glow, some, in, some empowerment, and that there was no outward evidence of it because Simon saw outward evidence. Thirdly, did it normally follow shortly after conversion? Yes. It says when the apostles heard that Samaria received the word of God. Now, was the, the was Philip preaching for two or three days? Maybe before he had the wisdom to send for Peter and John, or maybe somebody right away said, wow, this is cool, and went running for Peter and John without Philip sending them. 
it clearly couldn't have been more than a few days, possibly seven or ten days, if nobody thought to run to Jerusalem until this, the, till the move of God was three or four days old. It could have maybe been as many as seven or ten days. It clearly wasn't years. It, it followed shortly after conversion a few days. Fourthly, is there a spiritual in, atmosphere of impartation? First of all, there's much rejoicing in the city. Demons are being cast out. People are healed. But more importantly, Peter and John come, and in an atmosphere of laying on of hands and spiritual impartation, they begin to lay hands on the people to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, I personally believe that Philip was discerning enough. So were Peter and John. That's why not just anybody came up from Jerusalem. They understood that Samaritans receiving the kingdom of God and the Lord Jesus Christ was going to be an incredible issue. This meant clearly that this was not a move among just the Jews and those biologically born of Abraham. This was the beginning of, of all nations beginning to come in. And so uh, it was important that Peter and John were involved. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, By one spirit we were all baptized into one body. This was clear evidence in the disciples' paradigm of ministry. The apostles, as we'll see repeated with Cornelius two chapters later, that they understood because God gave them the Holy Spirit and, and speaking in tongues just as he did with us in Acts 2, that God is calling them brethren. He's covenantly grafting them in, that he is going through the covenant ceremony of baptizing them in water and the spirit, giving them gifts of the spirit to say that they are, that which is part of the inheritance of all children. Part of the reason Satan opposes the baptism in the spirit and gifts of the spirit is he does not want you as a child of God beginning to enter into the inheritance of the many things God has for you. And you'll always have the kingdom and in small measure and theoretical senses and so forth without the power of the Holy Spirit moving through your life. In the, in the baptism in the Spirit way with the, with the accompanying prayer language of speaking in tongues as a stepping stone to all kind of great manifestations of the Spirit. Clearly, this is shortly after conversion, clearly an atmosphere of spiritual impartation by laying on the hands. Are there additional biblical manifestations? The rest of the chapter, I mean, Philip even gets taken out by a, the Spirit of God and, and put down on, along the Gaza Road and preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch and so forth. Clearly, there were other outworkings of the Holy Spirit in, in the Samaritan Christians. Just read the rest of the chapter. So let's uh, move on to our third example, example three, which is Acts chapter 9 and the conversion and the calling uh, more, much more than just conversion, but the calling of Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1 says, uh, Now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Uh, he asked for letters uh, to the synagogue of Damascus. Uh, we already talked about that, you know, with the persecution breaking out in Acts 8, and which actually just, Acts 8 just mentions, I got uh, some things out of order there a little. Acts 8 just mentions that, uh, that, you know, Paul was in hearty agreement. But at this point, he goes beyond agreement, and he gets letters, and he's, he's going to go help wipe this thing out in, in Damascus. And so um, verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around them, and he fell on the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And I love this response. And, and he said, who are you, Lord? Curios, master. He, he, he understood. He didn't know it was Jesus, but he knew it was God. That's very important. And, uh, and Jesus said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. I'm going to tell you all about your calling and what this is going to cost you. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. It's interesting. He fasted right at the beginning of his Christian calling and experience. And the Lord, uh, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, did I say Ananias? And Ananias, and he said, here I am, trying to hurry too much. Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying and he has seen in a vision uh, a man named Ananias come and lay his hands on him that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. I love how, you know, there's no reason to believe from this passage that Ananias is any kind of leader in the church. He's mentioned nowhere else as a, as a teacher, prophet, shepherd, anything. Uh, interestingly, though, he has a deep enough relationship with God by the power of the Holy Spirit, that when he God speaks to him and sends them on this crucial, you know, the apostle to the Gentiles mission, he actually argues with the Lord a little bit about it. He's like, Lord, what did I ever do to you? I was just seeking you and spending time, and you're going to go have me pray for this guy? Uh, he said, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind who call on your name. But the Lord overruled him. He said, go, for he's a chosen instrument of mine to, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. How many of us would, would know that we are hearing from the Lord correctly? <laughs> How many of us would have said, well, I, man, you know, I must have had bad pizza or something. Uh, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Uh, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road. Notice, by the way, he hears the Holy Spirit so clearly that not only does he go, but because the Holy Spirit said he's a chosen instrument of mine, he calls him Brother Saul. And believe me, they, they totally understood that God said, I will take away the kingdom from, from Israel and, and give it to a nation producing the fruit of it. They clearly understood that Jesus was building my church, that he was calling a new family of God. And so when he calls him brother, he is saying, you are a son of the father through Jesus Christ like I am a son of the father. You are part of the real people of God. That's an important uh, understanding in a New Testament mindset. Brother Paul Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared on you by the road, uh, here was by which you were coming, has sent me that, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized, and he took food and was straightened. And now for several days he was all with all the disciples in Damascus, and he immediately began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Of course, all kinds of activity begin to happen, uh, testings, you, 
etc. Spiritual uh, warfare, so that Saul has to be let down in a basket to escape for his life. How? Okay, so let's look at uh, let's look at Paul in light of these five points. Now, Paul, number one, uh, Paul's calling and conversion uh, happens when he says, "Who art thou, Lord?" Even even Ananias recognizes that when Ananias calls him brother, okay? So it's clear that Paul is converted, and this is three days later, not three years later. That's always very, very important. This is three days later, not three years later. The second thing, the outward initial evidence of, of the inner reality is speaking in tongues. Well, Paul was clearly healed, Scales fell from his eyes. Uh, he clearly had, uh, uh, which is our point, uh, five additional things. He went in and preached. We, that happens, but it doesn't mention anything about whether he spoke in tongues or not. Um, I Again, my understanding is because this is so clear to New Testament Christians that they understood that someone who got baptized in the Spirit spoke in tongues. It is interesting that Paul later says, I speak in tongues more than you all. And he clearly makes clear in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 that speaking in tongues is a regular part of his Christian life and practice and how he builds and edifies himself in the Spirit. Um, now, point three, a few days We've already mentioned it. it's three days later. Point four, an atmosphere of spiritual impartation. Ananias is so anointed by the Spirit that he hears clearly what the Lord is saying. He goes to, to the point of an exact address and place and, and who to pray for and so forth. He argues with the Lord based on what he'd heard about Saul. He's confident that he's hearing correct when the Lord comforts him and says, go, he's a chosen instrument of mine. He's so confident he's hearing the Lord. Uh, how many of us walk in this kind of way with the Holy Spirit in our DNA? We can and should. That's this is Ananias' experience here is normative. And he says, Brother Saul. So then he lays hands on them. So again, we see this pattern of an anointed, filled with the Spirit person laying on his hands. It is quite important here, though, that it's not necessarily an official shepherd, teacher, or elder. It's a brother who's filled with the Spirit because he spends time with God. Example four, uh, Acts 10, Cornelius and the Gentiles. We will just read verses 34 through 48 for the sake of time, uh, but you should know that Cornelius, an angel appears to him, so an atmosphere of faith is starting right from the beginning. Uh, an angel appears to him. There's, uh, uh, he gives him an exact place in a in town nearby to send for Peter. Peter is having a vision, and that vision is opening up Peter's eyes to things that Scripture taught all along about the Gentiles not being unclean and so forth, that he doesn't get it, though, until he obeys and follows the leading of the Spirit all the way until the Spirit's poured out on Cornelius. Then he realizes, wow, I was missing major parts of Scripture. This is the Apostle Peter. Understand who Peter is when he sees this vision. He grew up in Galilee. Uh it's almost assured that he knew Jesus as a boy. He was a follower of John the Baptist. He switched to Jesus based on John the Baptist's declaration of who Jesus was. Uh, 
growing up in Galilee, he would have known, at least memorized the first five books of the Bible and probably most of the Old Testament. Yet he then he followed Jesus three and a half years. He saw Jesus minister to the Syrophoenician woman, heal the centurion servant. He saw many times where Jesus said that people will come into the kingdom from east, west, and so forth, and the, and the, the children of Abraham would be excluded. Yet, in this He's been the head apostle in Jerusalem for uh, probably somewhere from anywhere from three or four to eight years at this point. And he has no room in his mindset or theology for something that the scripture clearly teaches from Genesis to Revelation until he has this encounter with the Holy Spirit that leads him to Cornelius's house and God acts preemptively beyond what Peter uh, expected. And then his eyes are opened. This is important because God, you need powerful experiences with the Holy Spirit to help you see what you're missing in Scripture all along. That's biblically very normative. Uh, you know, the, the Pharisees wanted to study in, in this abstract theological way that pinned everything down exactly, and I'm all for studying. No one emphasizes biblical studies and church history and theology and all that more than we do, but um, I'm sure somebody does. But I love this stuff. I emphasize it a lot. I commend everyone in our church to try to study these things. But until you have powerful encounters with the Holy Spirit, you'll miss the message. You'll miss so much. So Cornelius... uh, Sends for Peter, and let's pick it up in chapter thir- or verse 34. Opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to his sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, Christ is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting with Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit. This is what should happen to someone who's anointed with the Holy Spirit. God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us who ate and drink with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all Those who were listening to the message, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because of the gifts of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. And they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God, just like in Acts 2. They heard them speaking the mighty deeds of God. Then Peter answered, surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as he he did just as we did, can can he? Can anyone refuse them to be water baptized, he's saying. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, when the apostles and the brethren, Acts 11, 1, who were throughout Judea, heard that the Gentiles also received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him. 
that's, you know, the religious are always trying to hinder the move of God. So Peter has to defend himself. And I won't give you the whole defense, but he tells the whole story in how, verse 12, how the Spirit told him to go without misgivings and so forth. And then verse 15, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did upon us at the beginning in the same pattern. That's very important to understand. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Now, this is a masterful defense. You call it in logic an enthymeme, but he, gave, he led them to a self-evident question like Jesus was always doing with the Pharisees. He left them no other choice. He said, if God did all this, who was I to stay in God's way? The, the implication is, who are you to continue to oppose the move of God and to stand in God's way? Humble yourself. Paul, Peter, it's a masterful lawyerly piece. He does a great defense uh, by the power of the Spirit and the wisdom of the Spirit. And because he follows the exact model of how Jesus dealt with the Pharisees all the time. So, um, let's look at our five points. It, on point one, is it, is it a distinct and separate experience? Now, in, in Acts 10, it's not that clear that it is. The Holy Spirit falls on them while they're listening to the message. And those of us who are Protestant after, say, the Wesley Whitfield era and Finney's and Spurgeon's and the altar call thing and so forth, we are used to thinking that someone can't be quickened and they can't be converted and they can't receive Jesus under the preaching sitting in the pew. That is so unbiblically wrong and so much a part of our modern tradition. No, they hadn't prayed the sinner's prayer. But Paul, Peter explains in the, in the next chapter exactly what happens, that they that they were baptized in the Holy Spirit just as we were after, 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 a time word, after believing in Jesus Christ. God gave them faith based on the angel coming to Cornelius and the vision of Peter and their coming together and the preaching of Peter. And these were God-fearing Gentiles who were pre-evangelized. They were, they were, have been drawing toward, they, you know, Jesus said no one can come unless the Father draws them. They were being drawn into the kingdom and their faith was convict, converted. They were converted during Peter's message. They didn't have to wait for the altar call like we think in modern times. That's a modern tradition that's not necessarily scriptural. They were converted. Their spirits were quickened. They wanted to follow the Lord Jesus. And that's clear from Peter's summary of the situation in the next chapter, after believing. Then they received the Holy Spirit. It's actually clearly a second experience for them that happens moments we don't know, you know, the, the Bible gives us summaries. Maybe Peter preached for 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours. But sometime during that message, they were converted. And sometime later in the message, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. And how did the disciples know the outward evidence of the initial inward experience that they believed as they said, we hear them speaking in tongues and exalting God just as he did with us. It's the same pattern. So it's clearly that they, the outward evidence is speaking in tongues. Uh, thirdly, it, does it normally happen 
shortly after conversion, we that combines with point one above. We've already addressed that. It it happens shortly after conversion, somewhere within a moments to hours. Certainly not days. Not not any longer period of time. Fourthly, uh, is there an atmosphere of spiritual impartation? Again, we've already addressed that. The angel. Uh, they find Peter exactly where the angel says to send for him. Peter tell, has this vision. Peter says, I'm, I've been changed. I understand now that God is, is extending the kingdom to you guys and so forth. So clearly there's an atmosphere of spiritual impartation. Clearly God didn't wait for any laying on of hands because, again, their religiosity was holding them back so much that he preemptively struck, so to speak, and quickened them during the preaching of Peter and later baptized them in the Holy Spirit. And, and then basically the disciples saw the pattern and said, we've got to deal with it. We've got to also allow them to be water baptized, extend, uh, be, extend, bring them into the family of God, all five steps uh, it doesn't say much about deliverance and healing, but they clearly start, they join the New Testament community of believers and, and a, a church is formed at Cornelius' house that very day. And they start in the New Testament pattern of life. Example five, uh, Paul at Ephesus, Acts 19, one through six. It would be helpful to you if you uh, were familiar with Acts 18 and the ministries of Apollos and uh, how... Um, Priscilla and Aquila had taken them aside and explained to them the way of God more accurately. But Paul comes on, in Acts 19, he comes upon 12 men that he thinks at first are disciples of Christ and finds out that they've only heard Apollos' message. They only know about John the Baptist and the things that, that were known about Jesus Christ through the ministry of John the Baptist. So we pick up from there. It says, it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus, where Apollos had previously been, and found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, therefore, Paul must have believed that it was possible not to receive the Holy Spirit in some greater impartation sense when you believe in the Lord Jesus. And they said to him, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, it was the New Testament pattern to lead people to Christ, proclaim the kingdom. They would have water baptized them. They would have baptized them in the Holy Spirit. They would have renounced Satan and his kingdom, cast out demons, and so forth. So when they say, we, he's thinking they're disciples, and they say, we've never heard of the Holy Spirit, he's, he's scratching his head and going, well, what are you into then? What, what's the deal? So uh, he said, after they say, we haven't even heard of the Holy Spirit, he said, into what then were you baptized? And they answer, into John's baptism. So Paul realizes what's going on. Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is in Jesus. So he builds on John's testimony and takes them right into telling them about Jesus. And we don't know how long he spoke to them about Jesus, but when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and when, time words, Paul laid his hands on them. The Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. They're all in about 12 men. Then he enters the synagogue and continues to speak out boldly. These 12 would have been the basis of the Ephesus church, and the whole riot breaks out in Ephesus and, and so forth. So uh, let's go through our five things again. Paul realizes, uh, after he says, were you 
Did you receive the Holy Spirit, which clearly implies it's possible not to have in some sense? Paul realizes that they're not Christians by their answer. So he leads them to Christ. And then after he does so, he water baptizes them and baptizes them in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, uh, when he does so, they speak in tongues and prophesy. Thirdly, this is clearly the same day they were converted. Fourthly, he lays hands on them, so there's an atmosphere of spiritual impartation. And fifthly, they are certainly with Paul as he begins to proclaim the kingdom in the synagogue, and all heck breaks loose in good ways and bad ways and opposition and everything else, and the Ephesian church is born amidst a riot and many other testings, brokenness, bold witnessing, all the other additional manifestations in, in our point five. So let's sum up. We've gone through five examples. It is clear that in a couple of them, speaking in tongues is, is implied or inferred. Paul doesn't say specifically he spoke in tongues at that time, but we know that he did. Acts 8 doesn't speak, speak that. But there was clearly some outward manifestation. In the rest of them, we see all, all three of the others, clearly they're speaking in tongues. And clearly in all of them, these other five things are happening, although some of them don't focus much on deliverance and healing. Uh, but that was part of, you know, being becoming part of the New Testament people of God and you renounce Satan in his kingdom at water baptism and so forth. So clearly a pattern develops here that uh, people receive Jesus Christ and five things happen to them. They're water baptized, they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, they're delivered and healed, and they enter a New Testament lifestyle. And the third thing called being baptized in the Holy Spirit, clearly a pattern develops there where there's a distinct and separate experience from the new birth. There's an outward evidence, normally speaking in tongues. It normally follows shortly after conversion, not years later. It, uh, it's best if there's an, an atmosphere of spiritual impartation, especially laying on of hands by, by people who walk clean and anointed and powerful with God. And fifthly, that all kinds of boldness for witnessing and increased zeal for God and, and testings and spiritual warfare, uh, the, a clash of kingdoms emerges, all kinds of stuff happens as the ongoing evidence of the Holy Spirit invading the earth and bringing the kingdom of God among us. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then know the kingdom of God has come upon you. So that's five biblical examples, five biblical patterns. Um, and we will, next time we will look at uh, chapter four, how to impart the baptism in the spirit and or how to receive it. Uh, and we will move along to those things on the next message.